0: And welcome back to yet another exciting episode of Digging Up the Past. I am your host, Petros Katupis. Now, what are we going to talk about today? Remember in our first episode when I discussed how I will have more focused episodes in their own separate sub-series? I did not know how to organize that originally, and truth be told, I still don't, but I'm going to try anyway. Note that the main series is not going anywhere. I am still going to generate content for it in parallel to this sub-series. Today's episode will be the first in my Bible-focused series. Oh boy, am I excited. And today we will talk about a somewhat controversial topic. What a way to kick things off. We will discuss biblical authorship as it pertains to the Old Testament. More specifically, the Pentateuch what Jews refer to as the Torah or the law. This is a very important topic, and I will tell you why. Not only does the Torah serve as the backbone to the Jewish faith, but it also serves as the foundation to Christianity. Remember, Jesus was a Jew, not a Christian. Christianity was born after his resurrection and after his followers spread his message. Taking a step back for a moment, I need to admit that I have been obsessed with this topic for over two decades. Not sure why, I have always loved and appreciated history since childhood, and as any impressionable child, it started with ancient Egypt. Then for me, it evolved to ancient Greece, but growing up in a Greek household, the Eastern Orthodox faith loomed thick in the air, and for some reason, it interested me. Enough so that I went on a quest to learn more. In the process, I started to teach myself the fundamentals of various ancient languages, which include biblical Hebrew. I already knew Greek, so it was not too difficult to pick up on uh, Septuagintal or Coin Greek. I knew that if I could read these texts in the language that they were meant to be read in, that a whole new world of understanding would be unlocked. Regardless of where my adventures took me, one thing is for certain, though. One thing that I have always circled back to is this. To understand how the Bible came together will aid in our understanding of how to interpret the stories within. To quote the famous Protestant reformer Martin Luther, The Hebrew language is the best language of all. If I were younger, I would want to learn this language because no one can really understand the scriptures without it. For although the New Testament is written in Greek, it is full of Hebraism and Hebrew expressions. It has therefore been aptly said that the Hebrews drink from the spring, the Greeks drink from the stream that flows from it, and the Latins from a downstream pool. Let us start from the beginning. Just kidding. And for those who are unfamiliar with biblical Hebrew, that is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, which states, In the beginning, God created both the heavens and the earth. Okay, all joking aside, maybe part joking aside, because we need to have a little fun here. Tradition, especially Jewish tradition, has it that the Torah was authored by Moses himself. However, for many centuries, this claim has been challenged and multiple theories have been put forth. Why, you ask? Well, the first five books of Moses are filled with so many inconsistencies, raising more questions than we can answer, under the assumption that Moses authored them. The biggest of which is, who authored the final chapter of the book of Deuteronomy describing the death of Moses on Mount Nebo? Also, why was uh, Deuteronomy written in a style different from that of the first four books, that is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers? There are passages revealing things not known to Moses in his lifetime. One example found in Genesis chapter 36, verse 31. And these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom, before there reigned any king over the children of Israel. During the lifetime of Moses, Israel had not settled in the promised land and in turn had no king. Also, Edom and the Edomite kings listed appeared much later in history. Other details include location names, which appeared long after the time of Moses. Uh, There's just so much. The duplication and repetition of certain stories, like the one of Noah and the flood spliced together, uh, the use of divine names, variation in language and style, the list goes on. In recent biblical scholarship and in the middle of the 20th century, a German scholar of the Hebrew Bible named Martin Knopf put forth a theory which would eventually evolve into what scholars today refer to as the documentary hypothesis. He built this theory on top of older biblical scholarship from the likes of the 11th century Isaac Ibn Yashush, a Jewish court physician of a ruler in Muslim Spain, Uh, the 17th to 18th century Richard Simon and Jean Ostruck, and more. It was a question that many felt was an important one to answer. Who wrote the Bible? Now, I want to make a side comment before we get deeper into this topic. I know that we often place biblical authorship into its own category. Honestly, anything related to the Bible is separated from the rest of historical studies, and that really isn't the greatest approach if your true goal is to understand how its authors were inspired. We're talking about social interactions, that is, neighboring civilizations, empires, Activities of commerce, as in merchants, among other influences or inspirations. This is how stories were shared. It didn't matter if the stories belonged in the Bible or were integrated in a mythological tale originally belonging to the Greeks or ancient Mesopotamians. At first, this thought process may sound crazy. But as this podcast subseries progresses, you will understand why I and many other mainstream scholars and archaeologists maintain such a stance on the topic. That is, it shouldn't be biblical history or biblical archaeology, but instead, Near Eastern history, Near Eastern archaeology, or maybe Canaanite history and archaeology since life in the biblical world was not isolated to the tiny region known as ancient Israel external influences played a much larger role than we originally thought. Soon, you will come to realize that everything that I have discussed in earlier episodes is all interconnected with the history of ancient Israel. Its people and the nation of did not just rise out of nowhere. Anyway, back to the documentary hypothesis, sometimes referred to as the source hypothesis. If Moses did not author part, or all of the Pentateuch, then who did? To think that the Torah is pure and without error, carefully copied and recopied by scribes over the generations to the codex our modern readings are based from today, well, it's a bit unrealistic. We are human, and humans make errors. A great example comes from the Table of Nations found in chapter 10 of Genesis, and again in Chronicles. In the first four verses of chapter 10 in Genesis, we read the following. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tiras, and the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Rifat and Torgamah, and the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim, of these were the isles of the nations divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families in their nations. In the Sons of Javan, we see some interesting nations, Elisha, Tarshish, the Kittim, and Dodanim. Well, Elisha is none other than Alishia, the ancient name of Cyprus, but more specifically means the Cypriots. There's a big question mark around Tarshish, but there's strong reason to believe that it may be identified with the Tarsinian or Tyrrhenian Sea west of Italy, and more specifically Sardinia. Evidence for this includes the 8th century BCE Phoenician-written uh, stone. Although I personally believe there may be some connection with the Teresia of the Sea peoples and the location of Tilosos on the island of Crete, but we're not here to debate that. As for the Kittim, in later years, this label stood for peoples of the general Mediterranean islands, but it is believed that it was initially used to identify the Greek-speaking peoples of Cyprus, and more specifically around the eastern island settlement of Kittion, or the Latin Kitium, which is a city that dates back to the Late Bronze Age and when Mycenaean Greek settlers established the city kingdom in the 13th century BCE. So then, who are the Dodanim? Well, we don't know. Based on the other nations, we have to look to uh, the Mediterranean. If we are to use the book of Genesis or the verse found in Genesis, then we will remain stumped. However, a quick peek in the first book of Chronicles, chapter 1, verse 7, may provide us an answer. And the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Rodanim. Huh. It isn't Rodanim. It is Rodanim, with an R and not a D. And we do know who the Rodanim are. They are the people of the Aegean island of Rhodes. And during the Iron Age, they were an influential force of their own. How could such a mistake happen? Well, the Hebrew letters Dalet and Resh look very similar, and it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume that a scribal error occurred in the book of Genesis sometime after the books of Chronicles were penned. I could sit here and point out all of the typos, errors, and such, but that isn't my goal for this episode. And as I mentioned earlier, what I would like to talk about is the authorship of the Pentateuch. It didn't just appear overnight. I mean, come on, if I gave you a pen and a ton of paper, Remember, they didn't have computers back then. It would take you, an individual, a really long time to write down all five books that make up the Torah. And I can guarantee there will be many scribbles, sloppy characters, some possibly completely illegible, and so on. We do see these types of markers in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And imagine the carpal tunnel, my hand just hurts thinking about it. Speaking of the Dead Sea Scrolls, modern perception of the biblical text changed significantly upon the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They contain the oldest surviving copies of the biblical books. You also have the Samaritan Pentateuch and even the Septuagint, that is the first Greek translation during the Ptolemaic period uh, in Egypt circa the 3rd century BCE. Sure, There's the Latin Vulgate and the Aramaic or Assyrian Peshitta. Um, They can help when attempting to recreate or interpret the original text, but they were written or translated much later and provide little value in the way of comparative studies. I will be covering these books in later episodes. Initially proposed by biblical scholars David Noel Friedman and Frank Moore Cross, there is this idea that the poetry came first. You know, the Song of the Sea in Exodus, the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy, and so forth. They were sung about for generations, likely to the tune of a lyre, passed down orally, and then eventually the, the prose came along and filled in those gaps. The biblical authors took the local traditions around the poetry and penned them on what could have been papyrus or animal skins. It isn't unreasonable to believe it either. My mind immediately wanders to the Homeric poems and how that was passed down for centuries, preserving details from an era long gone. I wrote about this many years ago with uh, the Song of Deborah found in the Book of Judges, chapter 5, and how the song seems to preserve a battle between ancient Israelites and the Shardana clan of the Sea Peoples, dating to approximately 1100 BCE. You can find this article in the archive of uh, the Digging Up the Past newsletters. I was not kidding. I have spent a really long time studying this. Now, what is the documentary hypothesis? In short, these literary phenomena were now at the center of a much heated debate. Questions arose testing the authorship of the scriptures. Did the Pentateuch hold Mosaic authorship? The founding fathers of the source hypothesis helped create the direction towards which future research was moving. By 1948, the source hypothesis had evolved, and Martin Knoth's work attracted widespread attention to the traditions hidden within the scriptures. In his originally written German book, History of Pentateuchal Traditions, Noth formulates and identifies all of E, or the Elohist, dating to the ninth century BCE. J, or the Yahwist, traditionally dated to approximately 950 BCE, and P, or the priestly sources found within the Pentateuch, whom scholars date to the 5th century BCE. To this day, many scholars base their tradition historical research on the works of Noth. In later scholarship, the Deuteronomist was identified to address the writing style of the Book of Deuteronomy. Scholars place these writings to either the 8th or 7th century BCE. And here's the thing, or I should say the point I want to emphasize. None of these sources materialized out of thin air. There is a long history that has led scholars to the documentary hypothesis, and its purpose is to answer the many questions and anomalies identified in Pentateuchal literature. Each author or source has a unique style. And this style becomes more apparent when you read the text in the Hebrew, the biblical Hebrew, especially within the context of history. For instance, what did so-and-so mean by saying that? Or is this an ancient pun that we are overlooking or not understanding? That being said, while centuries of biblical scholarship has proposed the documentary hypothesis, it has not gone unchallenged. For instance, In his phenomenal 1973 book, Canaanite Myth and Hebrew Epic, Frank Moore Cross disputes that P is nothing more than a redaction, discrediting it as an actual source and placing it as filler to connect all the oddities and genealogies for both E and J. Cross further claims that J was nothing more than propaganda work of the empire. This source recounts the events that brought old Israel into existence emphasizing Israel as the blessed nation and source of blessing. To quote Cross, J is propaganda work of the united monarchy, specifically the program of Solomon to constitute an oriental monarchy in the Canaanite pattern. The older epic, cut loose from the covenantal cultists of the tribal sanctuaries of the league, was shaped by the Yahwist for new institutions and new functions. Many have rejected this conclusion, including Hans Heinrich Schmidt, who in 1976 proposed a drastic revision of the current understanding of J. Schmidt dated J to the exilic period, claiming it to hold a uh, close affiliation to the Deuteronomic or Deuteronomistic literature. John van Seters also has a late date for J. Seters had placed it around the time period of the Greek historian Herodotus, insisting the two bore many similarities. Then there were those who rejected the documentary hypothesis. These scholars came from two opposite ends of the spectrum, the most traditional and the most radical. The most traditional consisted mainly of fundamentalist uh, Christians and Orthodox Jews who argued that the first five books of the Bible were written by none other than Moses himself. The most radical claim was that the Pentateuch was written centuries later and that it was more mythological than historical. When analyzing the Hebrew text, many peculiarities stand out. For instance, linguistics. The Semitic language of Hebrew had evolved over time. And this fact is apparent when studying the biblical scriptures. As noted earlier, J and E come from the earliest stage of biblical Hebrew, while P comes from a later stage of the language and is still earlier than the Hebrew used in the book of Ezekiel, which comes from the period of the Babylonian exile. The chronology of the languages is confirmed by Hebrew texts belonging outside of the Bible. A good example would be that J uses the term harabah in Genesis 7, and Exodus 14, 21 for dry ground, while P uses a later term for the same meaning, Yabasha, Genesis 1, 9, and 10, 8, 14, and Exodus 14, 22. Terminology varies from source to source. Uh, For example, the mountain of Sinai has been seen 20 times throughout J and P, while E and D use Horeb, or the mountain of God, 14 times. The phrase, be fruitful and multiply, occurs 12 times only in P, and the term used to identify the place where the dead go, Sheol, occurs six times in J, but never in other sources. These are just a few of many examples. As for other content within the sources, throughout the scriptures, E and P identify God as El, or Elohim, meaning God, along with many other variations of this title, which include El Shaddai, El Elyon. It wasn't until the name was revealed to Moses that we find Yahweh used as the name of the supreme deity. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. And I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, and I was not known to them by my name, Yahweh. Meanwhile, Jay uses the name Yahweh from the very beginning, more specifically in Genesis four twenty-six, Then began men to call upon the name of Yahweh. In addition, Jay never uses the word God, Elohim, in the proper form in its narration except for six times in the primeval story of Genesis. Genesis 3, 3 and 5. and 4, 9.26 and 27. And again, in the ancestral story, we see a few references in Genesis 43 through 45, and again in Exodus 34.22. With the exception of Genesis 6.2 and 6.4, Jay excludes the word God in the proper form from the narration. It is when the individual persons in Jay speak that the word God is used in such a way all other occurrences that I have not listed as being found within the primeval portion of Genesis under J have been credited to R, or what scholars refer to as the redactor. Despite this phenomenal fact regarding the divine names, we still find scholars on this subject asserting that the use of divine names does not prove anything. Then there is the concept of chronology, A large portion of the genealogies, ages, dates, measurements, numbers, and precise instructions are obviously of major concern to P, while J, E, and D don't care or cannot compare. Then there is the orthography. I'm talking about the spelling of words during different periods of the spoken ancient Hebrew language. The way words were spelled evolved. The alphabet is a consonant-only alphabet. There are no vowels, but over time, some of the letters were being used to fill that gap. There is a Latin phrase identifying this called the matres lecciones. Anyway, in its early years, this was not a thing. How about the repetition of the texts? There exists anomalies where some of the narratives showcase parallel and sometimes contradictory themes, but from separate sources, while at times holding an agenda. There is this, there seems to be this strong emphasis on language and, and language style and spelling and the meaning of words. And one thing that I want to remind our listeners is that this is not unique to Hebrew. Just think of the English language. The English language we speak today is not the same as the English language spoken a couple hundred years ago by our founding fathers. It's not the same spoken at the beginning of the 20th century. It's not the same spoken two decades ago. Just in the last decade alone, the use of our words has evolved. We've created new words. Some words have taken on new meanings, mostly in the slang, but it doesn't matter. The fact is, all of this has changed. And now, with the influence of text messaging and and, uh, tweeting, or social media, I should say, the way in which we spell a lot of this stuff, correct or not, has also drastically changed. Just imagine if someone, an archaeologist 2,000 years from now, is able to dig up a text from one of our cell phones. Somehow they find a way to power up this ancient device, and they start going through these messages. They're going to look at it and say, wow, this is how they spelled these words? And then they'll be able to place us at a specific period in history. This is from the 2020s. You know, this text belongs in the 20 teens and so forth. So this idea is not radical. It makes sense. And we can do that using extra biblical resources, you know, archaeological discoveries, things that were found in the ground and frozen in time. You know, we're able to look at these ancient texts found on pottery shards or other forms of uh, ancient documents, maybe chiseled in stone or, or or written on papyrus, and then compare it to the scripture and say, okay, hey, this you know this this piece of uh, information dates to so and so century. Anyway. The list goes on, and I do not want to spend too much time diving into the details. However, for those interested in learning more about the documentary hypothesis, I will suggest the works of biblical scholar Richard Elliott Friedman, and more specifically his books, Who Wrote the Bible, and The Hidden Book in the Bible. I own them both. They are phenomenal, if this is something that you are interested in. Now, I want to briefly shift focus on another interesting authorship theory. It is often labeled as the Imperial Authorization or Persian Hypothesis. The hypothesis was originally presented in the 1980s by Peter Frey of the University of Zurich. It essentially revived an old theory about the influence of the Persian Empire on Jewish law during the time of Ezra. It gets a bit more complex than that. According to Frey, imperial authorization of local legislation allowed for a local authority, you know, specifically in the region of Yehud, that is Judea during the Persian period, within the Persian Empire and was endorsed by the central Persian government to the point of being taken up as imperial law. It is believed that this was uh, attested in a variety of ancient texts, which include the biblical books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And according to the hypothesis, this provides the backbone or foundation and need to author the Torah. Now, I do not know very much about this theory, but it has been gaining a bit of popularity in recent decades. Knowing what we know today, how does this challenge our faith, especially for those who come from a Judeo-Christian upbringing and are still practicing? Well, that is entirely up to you. Remember, it is tradition that claims a Mosaic authorship. Nowhere in the Old Testament Bible do we explicitly read that Moses wrote the Torah. And we have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack Threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at Who knows, it may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis, signing off.